This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Peter White. This week, we deviate from our regular producer interview. Instead of a hip young gunslinger eager to tell us why their new show is the best thing commissioned since bread, we talk to a pissed-off Kathleen Moran about her cancelled sitcom Raised by Wolves and how she's planning on giving Channel 4 two fingers. Also on the programme... We have previews of One of Us, a dark BBC One crime drama, and BBC Daytime cooking competition, Yes Chef. And we wonder, what will our guests think of this summer fodder? That's all coming up on today's episode of Talking TV. Joining me at Maple Street Studios, two former alumni of The Word. As always, Kerfuffle founder Stephen D. Wright and Paul Sandler, managing director of Cats on the Roof Media, an ITV-backed production group. How are we, lads? Very good. Very well, thank you. And you both used to work together, is that right? We did, hundreds of years ago, back in the steam age, on the word. We we both had a lot of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on. First this week, more empire building. This time, BBC Worldwide writing the checks. The commercial arm of the BBC revealed that it has taken a 25% stake in Tessa Ross and Juliet Howe's fledgling indie House Productions, as well as a 15% stake in 72 films. The new company from former Dragonfly MD Mark Raphael, the man who commissioned The Educating Strand, and Channel 4's former hair specialist factual David Glover, commissioner of Gogglebox. This takes the number of indies it has invested to in the last 12 months to seven. Uh, Guys, you've both set up your own indies uh, recently. Uh, What's the appeal? Obviously, the BBC wants to get into content. Worldwide's got a, you know, been doing this for a while now. You know, they're cherry picking some big names. You know, whether or not these will all be big successes, who knows? But, you know, that's the way of the world at the moment. I think that's absolutely right. It's it's all about scale and and it's all about content. Uh, And I think it's a very, very astute move by by BBC Worldwide. They've tried to do it before and were slapped back down by the trust. But as soon as um, that limitation's been removed, they're back in the game again. And I think quite right too, you've, you've got a distribution business, that's the core of any production entity really. And I think they've made some good investments. I think the Raphael Glover company could really be very, very interesting. I think the house is certainly uh, something I think will be a winner. Because so, of the people involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's always because of the people involved, I think. So I think they've actually invested very well, unlike some of the aggregators you can look at who seem to go a bit crazy and invest in anything. But they, they look like astute moves to me. Is it easier now to get funding than it ever has been? I think for certain people, they probably have a range of options. There are certainly people with willing money, but I don't think that means it's necessarily easy for anyone to get it. You set up Cats on the Roof uh, last year. Uh, and you obviously shopped around before you ended up at, at ITV. Uh, a lot of those deals that the various companies doing, are they relatively similar or, or do they differ? They, in my experience, they differ. I'm, I'm involved, I'm the chairman also of Eleven Film, which is one of the Channel 4 growth fund companies. And that the way that deal was put together was very different from the way the ITV deal was put together. We didn't start the ITV deal with the idea, this is Andrew, Andrew O'Connor and myself, we didn't start with the idea that we would set up this group and then go and look for funding. We really went straight to ITV to talk to them about what they might be interested in, knowing what their strategy was, and to see whether we could do something that would be attractive to them and that might be mutually beneficial. So we sort of only ever had one plan. So luckily it came off. And they're interested in the pipeline, right? They want you. They want the shows that you make for international distribution. Absolutely. I think that's a major start, a starting point. And they want it for their own platforms. Uh, they want the revenue streams. But most of all, they want to feed the sort of the monster that is ITV GE. And what's the downside to this, Stephen? 
The downside is when they say no to your funding. That's basically the only downside, I think. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things. You get into bed with the devil, you know, you have to give up epic equity or whatever, but it's about uh, existing in a very financially slow and brutal world. So most indies are based on ideas. How long it takes that idea to get through to fruition is essentially the, 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 the difference between life and death. So the money from whatever source or entity or whatever is, is, is what it's all about. And so... If you can have a kind of a, a good deal where you're not necessarily being too, you know, probed by your kind of, uh, you know, investors and are allowed some sort of creative freedom and then hopefully a bit of luck, then, yeah, good. But that seems to be, everybody seems to be in that world now where you have to, you have to take the money and you have to obviously work yourself to the bone to get that money to work and to, 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 to repay that money. It's all about the money. It's all about the money. So, you know, this is just another sort of sort of funding model. Horrible phrase, but it's about vertical integration, isn't it? If, you've, if, yeah. if you look at ITV, why wouldn't ITV want to own the companies that make the content they desperately need to put on their platform? It's no secret. I heard Stephen talking about it in the last podcast, actually. <laughs> um, but it's no secret. It's in their annual report. They have a target of 67 or so percent of their product of their content they want to be making themselves. Why wouldn't you? It's just good business sense. I think. Is that worrying for the rest of the indie community? I think the problem, to answer the question you asked Stephen a minute ago, I think that for whom is it bad? It's bad for the indies who aren't inside, who in, aren't inside mm. the tent. I think it does make the market they've got to aim at smaller and smaller and the likelihood of them getting commissioned equally smaller and smaller. On the other hand, if they're coming up with great ideas and great content, they're likely to be invited in. Can you see this empire building ending anytime soon? I'm always terrible at predicting the future, but I don't see why it would. Up next, the BBC and Channel 4 have both launched director schemes this week. The BBC is working with Minnow, Nine Lives Media and BBC Studios on six new documentaries from fresh directors, while Channel 4 has partnered with Lime Pictures and Directors UK to get more female directors to work on Hollyoaks. Um, guys, this seems to be an issue that's come up in, in the last couple of years. Uh, do you agree that there's a shortage of female directors in, in television? It's difficult. I read this story and thought, mm, and I went through my head. I work with sort of 90% women in TV, commissioners, producers, researchers, whatever. And then I was thinking, directors, directors, are directors not feeling you know? it? And it was one of those things, I don't know whether it, from a drama perspective, it might be slightly different, but I have a very sort of, uh, I don't know, vague thing where I think that TV's quite female dominated in terms of the people I work with. So, but I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for getting people in. As many, there's so many, there's so many hurdles in telly, um, you know, and having a baby or being being seen as having a baby, which seems to be the, the only di thing different between a, a man director and a female director. These things should be made as easy as possible. But, you know, there should be as many different types of people coming into telly because that's what it's all about. It shouldn't be straight white men, whatever, Oxbridge types or whatever. It sh so all these schemes and then there's a scheme like this every year, basically. Whether it actually works is the real question. Do you know what I mean? It's because... The, you know, there is always a scheme. There's always a new, uh, in, uh, you know, speeches made, something it's like, but do the figures actually change? Are there more female directors? You know, are there more old directors? That's, that's an interesting one. Ageism is even more prevalent than sexism, I would think. I, I think it has to be a good thing. I mean, I think there is a, a problem with um, directors and, and the split. The, the statistics quite clearly show that. And I think anything that's a positive effort to, you know, to equalise and open up uh, and make more accessible uh, any aspect of this business, which is predominantly white and middle class and has, as Stephen says, a whole bunch of really, really big hurdles to overcome to get into, has to, has to be a good thing. I'm not sure I would have necessarily started with directors and women, um, but it's great. There's no bad thing about it. 
do schemes like this help, do you think? Or do we get this situation where, as Stephen says, we, we end up with a scheme a year and nothing really changes? I think there does seem to be a real uh, mood across the industry to make the changes that everyone is talking about in the last 18 months actually work. And the introduction of Diamond, which kicks off from programmes commissioned after, after the 15th of August, will at last impose some level of measurability. And so, Project Diamond is the scheme with all of the broadcasters, right? That's right, and it's a scheme where, whereby you really audit the details of the individual people working on your shows. So, you know, a year on, you'll be able to look at Diamond quite clearly and be able to say, in drama, in the UK, the number of directors who were, you know, female or were Muslim or were Bami of one type or another was exactly X, and there'll be no arguing about it. It won't be anecdotal. It'll simply be statistical. Great. We'll see. We'll hope so. Uh, Elsewhere... ITV revealed plans this week to bolster scripted comedy across its schedule. The broadcaster is looking for comedies for both the main channel and ITV2, having not commissioned a scripted comedy since cop-turned-midwife sitcom The Delivery Man in 2014. The plans were lauded by indies, but producers also warned that they needed to ensure that it didn't fall into another cycle of failure. Uh, do you agree, guys, that, that this is an interesting move with ITV getting back into comedy? Absolutely. I mean, ITV, people forget that ITV are behind some of the greatest comedies we've ever seen. You know, Rising Damp, things like this. These were ITV comedies. ITV always had comedies. And then they sort of lost their nerve. Mum was about to say, mind your language. Maybe that's why they lost their nerve. Um, I was thinking on the buses, love thy neighbour. These are brilliant comedies, but this is Mm. the thing about ITV. ITV can do drama brilliantly, it can do factual brilliantly, but for some sort of lily-livered kind of fear for the last few years, comedy's been one of these ones we can't do. They can, they can do anything they like. ITV2 has become funnier, has become cooler. You know, Family Guy uh, and the success of Love Island has made ITV kind of... Oh, and Plebs. Plebs is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Brilliant comedy, which should be playing on ITV1. They should be repeating it on ITV1. I mean, it's just that thing. Kevin Ligo knows comedy, uh, knows entertainment, and he can really bring these things into ITV, and the audience will respond massively. You know, they've for the last, so I'd say, what, 10 years? They've given um, the BBC a clear run. You know, ITV can take the comedy crown whenever it wants, if it takes risks. I think it's exact. I think Stephen's exact uh, spot on. Uh, with comedy, you have to give it time to breathe, and you have to give it. Uh, you have to take risks because you're not sure what's going to work. And ITV is very risk averse. It sees itself as very, very broad stream. It identifies um, an ITV family of viewers that it wants to appeal to, and it's very, very wary of stepping outside those those boundaries. But um, you know, when it does, it does it extremely well on occasion. And and you know you. With comedy, you do have to give it more time, and it's risky. And commercially, that's a very difficult thing to um, to get into. But I think Kevin has to do something because their ratings performance is not great against BBC One at the moment. And I think I think Stephen's absolutely right. They've given BBC One a clear run, and it's time they started to challenge that. Peter Davy called it a new dawn under Kevin. Uh, how are you finding um, the pitching to them? Do you get a sense that they're they're really looking for different things than under Peter Fincham? That is. Yes, I think that's right. I think it is a new dawn. I think the process is different, the conversations are different, the access is different. It does feel like something very new. And finally, uh, Vice revealed this week its first slate of UK original programming for its linear channel, which launches in September. Uh, It is launching shows such as Hate for Beginners and Big Night Out for Viceland, shows that it produces in-house. Stephen, what do you you make of Vice, uh, the hip young gunslingers of the day? You know, as an ex-hip young gunslinger, I now look at Vice with a very sort of rosy, nostalgic eye. But the thing that puts me off a little bit is um, that everyone thinks Vice is so incredible. Vice is just doing what Channel 4 was doing 20 years ago. It's old school youth TV that, you know, everybody did. 
But for some reason, Vice has been given this incredible kind of glamour of being new and cool and what the kids are into. The thing that slightly puts me off is the the slight uh, uh, fuck you message of we're not going to commission from the indies. In which case, fuck you, Vice. You know what I mean? Because it's like, um, just you wait. You know, you're going to find out what Netflix does. When Netflix starts and was all about we're, we're so great, and then suddenly it's actually we're going to start showing old BBC and ITV and Channel 4 content. They will need content. These channels are massive. And a few cool hipsters documentaries, you know, with people walking about sex clubs, which is basically what Vice does, isn't going to fill it. So it's, although, you know, welcome to the gang, Viceland, at least open your door because there's a huge community of talented creators out there who can make your programs better. That's my message to Vice. What do you think, Paul? I just respect any any organisation that has a, a programme with uh, expletives in the title. So their food programme, Fuck That's Delicious, is, uh, <laughs> you know, has won me over straight away. I have a good friend who works at Vice who tells me that it's great, but everyone there has a beard, tunnel earrings, tattooed eyes, and spends most of their time eating pulled pork. Um, so it sounds great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing uh, Shane Smith's <laughs> McTaggart speech uh, next week. That's your news. Thanks to Stephen and Paul. This week, Channel 4 cancelled Big Talk produced sitcom Raised by Wolves after two series. The show, created by the Times columnist Catelyn Moran, secured a consolidated average of 1.3 million across its first season and was watched by 1.2 million across its second season. Moran has urged fans of the series to show their support with a social media campaign. She's also working, in her words, on a fucking gigantic plan for the show. In this clip, Mum Della gathers the family onto the bunk bed to make an announcement. No more liquids today. I want you all dry inside. Why? Mummy here's been at work 70% of her waking hours for the last six months. She's paid a massive gas bill, avoided your main reproducing and treated you all for fleas without you even knowing. So... Because I am friggin' worth it. We are having a holiday. And joining us from her own holiday in deepest, darkest Devon is Catelyn Moran. So when did you find out uh, that Channel 4 had cancelled Raid by Wolves? Uh, We found out last week um, and uh, my response was to do that thing. Have you seen the cover of the film Platoon on DVD where he drops to his knees and he's going, no, war is terrible. Um, That was kind of my response. But we're we're resourceful working class girls. You know, we've we've come through worse than this. Did they tell you why? They they said it, it, it hadn't done as well as they wanted it to do. Um, which didn't make sense to us because in that slot, it's sort of outperformed everything else. We've got nominated for a rose door. You know, the reviews have been incredible. You know, the fans like embroider things and make kind of raised by wolves merchandise and have raised by wolves memes. And on top of that, we were just very aware that it's the only sitcom about and written by working class women in Britain, which is pretty shaming. Uh, you know, given that the working classes are the funniest, uh, the funniest of all the classes, I would say, if there was going to be a comedy war. So, um, so yeah. So just in terms of everything, really, in terms of representation, in terms of how well it had done, in terms of the awards we've been nominated for, it just made us go right. This can't be over. As you say there, it, it, given that Channel 4 is, you know, a, a public broadcaster, were you surprised, you know, as you say, it's the, one of the few shows that represents the Midlands, particularly a place where, you know, there's some talk that Channel 4 might end up. Uh, that's obviously a little bit surprising. 
Well, yeah, no, totally. Again, I mean, you know, we just thought, I mean, basically, we, you know, we sat down and deliberately contrived the least cancelable show ever. We're not actually from the Midlands or working class. <laughs> we just made up this fantastic backstory, just going, they can never decommission this now. We purposely made Aretha a lesbian. We thought we'd covered every single angle that meant that you'd have to keep a show on, on air. And it turns out it didn't work. So, uh, so yeah, so we were so, you know, and because it's the 21st century, um, you know, you realize that, you know, once something gets, uh, you know, dropped by a channel, that doesn't need to the end of the story if you've got a load of fans on board so um so what? we're starting this new campaign now to, to concentrate the love in one area and make sure this isn't the end why, why do you think it is the only working class uh, sitcom on telly well i mean as someone who comes from the council states you know when i was there and you know i watched you know me and my, you know, me and all my family who all co-wrote the you know most of whom who <laughs> co-write the show uh we just used to watch telly all the time we would go and borrow books that have you know the scripts of blackadder and faulty towers from the library um and we knew that that was what we wanted to do but how how could you then make a tv show if you're on a council estate doesn't no one comes and says would you like to make a tv show uh you know if you if you're middle class and then you know you, you go to one of you know the acceptable schools you know you'll go to school with someone whose dad owns a production company or works for channel four who can get you a job as an intern and you start to meet people and you know they might know people who work in the industry if you're on a council estate you never get to meet anybody from the media or from london um, and so you never get invited and that's all you need you just need an invitation someone to put out a hand and go yeah you could make a tv show if you wanted to and then so what's next uh, the, the campaign launched this week um the sort of social media push uh, it, you're trying to sort of raise awareness we just want to get all the fans together in a gigantic room and then we're going to jump in through a window and go surprise here's fa- phase two uh, no, no, we have a big plan. We have to keep it mysterious because when you're being a superhero and working on some kind of, you know, some kind of fantastic campaign, you have to keep it mysterious. Uh, but yes, we just basically want to just just see if people still want there to be a show. And if they do, we've got a plan and we're going to make that happen. And most people, when their show is cancelled, they sort of grumble and they give up and they and they go away. What uh, what made you want to fight on? I know that the first stage of grieving when you've had your sitcom cancelled is usually to go down to Soho House and just bitch about it to other people who've had their shows cancelled. But um, but again, you know, we're working class girls. You know, we, we've lived in a world where we've had to bulk out our bolognese with bags of frozen peas and, you know, and kind of, you know, kill rats in our bedroom with a shoe. Um, so the cancellation of a show compared to what we went through in our childhood is actually quite small beer. Uh, we feel quite braced. In fact, we work at our best uh, when it feels like something's going wrong. Our motto has long been, if it looks like it's going wrong, it's actually going right <laughs> and you've got the cast and the and the producers and the crew everyone that is still involved oh god absolutely yeah all we're doing is emailing each other all the time just kind of like sort of semi-tearfully punching the sky going we fight on we fight to win uh, everyone who ever worked on the show would just sort of say in tones of awe there aren't any other shows like this to work on like it was such a close family and because the things we were dealing with like kind of like teenage girls getting their first periods or masturbation or first love or being poor uh, were like massive talking points kind of and it was a mainly female crew as well we had a female producer who made, made sure that we had a mainly female crew uh, you know everyone would just sit around until two o'clock in the morning talking and hugging and sharing and kind of and being very funny and it was like it was a proper family so that's the other reason we want to carry on like we just you know usually when you finish doing a show you're like I'm glad I'm not going to see those dicks again uh, but we, we all still know each other and want to hang out with each other so we just want to carry on hanging out with each other and making people laugh it sounds like you're going to make a third series whatever happens 
yeah, that's kind of the plan, but uh, but we can't sound too positive. You know, we're kind of like, yeah, mysteriously. We want to say in a mysterious tone of voice, maybe there will be a third series. That would be the Midlands way of saying it. But you're, <laughs> you're optimistic. Oh, yeah. No, no. Well, well, I mean, you know, we've written it. Um, and, right. you know, it's very important. You know, Jermaine Gary is 16 years old. She's been horny for about three years. We can't end the series with her still a virgin. She would not want that. We would not want that. So we fight on. We fight on to let Jermaine lose her cherry. Previews time now. Back in the studio with Paul Sandler and Stephen D. Wright. The first preview is BBC One drama One of Us. Written by Harry and Jack Williams, One of Us is a Scottish crime drama with a moral dilemma following the murder of Adam Elliott and Grace Douglas and following the fallout from their families. It's produced by BBC Scotland and the story begins as the local police breaks the news of the murder to Grace's parents. What brings you all the way out here? Bill, right on. I, uh, I got a call from Edinburgh Police. They've, uh, found your girl, Grace, in her flat last night. There'd been a break-in. She was murdered, Bill. Her and Adam Elliot, but I just... No, no, no. What about the baby? Sorry. We need someone to identify them. I was, I was thinking, Louise's other boy, Rob, he, he lives in Edinburgh, doesn't he? She's my child, Charlie. <laughs> I, I should go and see her. Not like this, Bill. What did you think of that, Stephen? Well, it was, you know, it looks really impressive. Big cast, big budget, whatever, you know, impressive use of the rain and wind machines. I found it really disappointing because it felt... It was all, you know, it was all, it was all tricks. It was all moody looks and shadows, and obviously it's a whodunit and everything else. But it, it felt like they were sort of ladling it on thick. But some things that were really kind of, there was a few kind of credibility issues I had with the storyline. But the biggest problem I had with this: this is a Scottish drama set in the Highlands, based on a murder in Edinburgh, and there was two Scottish accents. Two. Uh, there was an Irish guy there. There was posh English. I've never met Scottish people that speak like that. You know, a BBC Scotland drama, a big BBC Scotland drama, I would have thought would have had, you know, authentic accents, or at least actors attempting a bit of an accent. I mean, if I was a Scottish actor, I'd be so depressed, you know, watching this, because it's like only English actors can play Scottish roles now. It's like, that really kind of annoyed me for some reason. And yet, the you know, the show's obviously big, it's dramatic, it's got a, you know, it's got a big kind of a dramatic hook at the end, etc. But I felt ugh, very disappointed. What did you think, Paul? I didn't enjoy it as much as I had hoped I would. And I think in part, it's a four-parter. I think, you know, if it had been made in Denmark um, <laughs> and was allowed to run to, you know, 12, 16, 20 parts, the potential for really examining some of the very, very interesting questions it, it raises and some of the, the, the really interesting family dynamics um, and family by, mar by marriage dynamics that it sort of hints at um, would 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 be there. I think they could really take the time, really dig deep. This felt a little bit rushed. The cast is quite big, as, as Stephen said, and it felt like in episode one they had an awful lot of things to do and to get through, and it just too felt much a bit, exposition. Yes, um, a little bit, and and uh, too much look, looking out the window for for me. There was there was not enough exposition for me. 
I think that's you know right I mean? in a way. It, the, it, you felt they had, they were rushed. It felt a little yeah. bit rushed to me. And I think in, with more with more airtime, there could have been that. Yeah, that no, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. If this had been a Scandinavian thing with subtitles, itchy jumpers, and all the rest of it, we would have been saying what a masterpiece. It felt like they were doing a kind of exactly that. They squ- scrambled it a bit, and they've kind of forgotten. And of course, because of our ears, we can spot the the, the, the lack of kind of convincing accents. But you know that gloom. It's, this is a Scandi noir, a Scottish noir, I suppose. A new genre, but yeah, it's a Scottish noir. It needs needs much more room to breathe. I think right. that's the other thing. Is it's a hard watch, you know, for a viewer, for a family to sit around and watch this. There's no there's no fun in this, and it's not. It doesn't grip you in the way that a kind of uh, a Happy Valley. I mean, that's what I was comparing it to when I was watching it. And I was thinking Happy Valley is fairly dark, but you know, for some reason, it's got vivacity and life and authenticity. This just felt dark and gloomy, and a little bit over the top. And it was like, where's the, you know, where's the joy? Where's the, where's the, do I care about the characters? I mean, that's, I the classic, that's, that's, that's the classic line in any drama. And that's spot on, because in, in, in Happy Valley, you feel instantly drawn to the characters, even though, you know, in many cases, they're not particularly pleasant. Mm-hmm. But you identify with them, you, you feel drawn to them, you are interested in them. There was none of that yeah. for me in this. A lot all. of brooding, you know, because obviously the thing about this show is it's a whodunit. And, and you can't necessarily tell which character's innocent and which character's guilty, etc., but there was that thing of the believability of the characters or the, or the, or the empathy. You know, this, the show starts with a double murder. I mean, that's not a giveaway. But you, I didn't feel for them. I didn't care. Now, that's, that's quite a... Will you watch the rest to see who did it? Not sure. I'm really not sure. Paul? I probably won't. No. OK. Uh, One of Us airs on the 23rd of August at 9pm on BBC One. Next up, a new BBC daytime series, Yes Chef... In the show, 16 chefs, all with Michelin stars for their names, mentor amateur home cooks to do battle in the kitchen. Here, Cherie Murphy and Michelin star chef Paul Ainsworth meet John and Julie. What are you making? It's a posh Kiev, I would call it. I love Kiev. Oh, do you? <laughs> I do. I've been praying for a chef who loves Kiev, so basically... Lots of garlic butter. Lots of garlic Good. butter. And then wholemeal breadcrumbs, then served with asparagus. Yeah. And these carrots I'm going to do in, like, a light honey and lemon glaze. Yeah. And then... I've got the other chicken breast here, so I'm going to see if I've got time to throw another one in as well. And right, OK. That'll be my lunch. Brilliant. OK. Look forward to it. Okay. Thanks, John. Thank you. Making me hungry for posh Kiev. Uh, Stephen, is this the, uh, this the next uh, MasterChef? No, but it's certainly watchable when you're waiting for the next MasterChef. It's, it's very watchable telly, this. You know, you, you do... If you, you know, if you look at it from a kind of what do you get from the show, you do get quite a lot of tips... You do see people, you know, balls in it up. You see them making mistakes, etc. You've got that little bit of, oh, I wish I'd won the competition and all that nonsense. But it's it's a 1% different from the last time we've seen this, you know, kind of competitive format. To me, the, the, the show felt slightly long. It's an hour-long show, or 45 minutes, I think it is, whereas I think it could have been 30 minutes, you know, or something like that. It felt a little bit like we were plodding a bit. But it's very pure. It's a pure cookery show. And for that audience, probably they'll they'll you know eat it up. Oh, there you go. I disliked almost everything about this. Oh, Paul, <laughs> why? Uh, I thought it was derivative. I thought it was boring. It didn't teach me anything new. The way the uh, contestants are introduced with little sort of Premier League style short moves. One of them is grating a lemon very concentratedly, and then the camera moves in slightly, and he looks up straight down the lens and smiles. And you saw that shot three or four times. It made me want to smash my telly. Um, I thought it was 
overcut, undershot. They talked about, oh, look at the garlic butter oozing out of the chicken breast. I didn't have the shot. No seasoning, so, Paul, is what you're saying. No yeah. seasoning. I, I thought it was terrible. I also think there's a big jeopardy when you make your presenter an actress because she delivers lines rather than being fluent or having a conversation with the viewer. So it felt terribly scripted, terribly stilted. It was repetitive. I was very bored. It looks like they're trying to do some sort of come cook with me with this. Do you get that impression? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the what the sort of the rationale behind it is. It was, you know, real people are quite good cooks, but it's not as good as MasterChef. You know what I mean? It's 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 not quite got the. It, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to have enough of a USP, I think, really, because otherwise it is just people cooking. But then, you know, this is the thing: cookery shows are popular, so I wouldn't be surprised if this runs and runs and runs. But for all the reasons that Paul said, it's it's not. It doesn't grab you. You know what I mean? Did you get the sense it was a daytime format, Paul? Yes, very much so. Um, and I am a terrible judge. It should be said. It should be said. I, I absolutely have no real understanding of television at all. So <laughs> yeah, the fact that I hate it is almost a guarantee that it's going to run for years. Okay. Yes, Chef launches on Monday, the fifth of September. It's made by ITV Studios and runs for twenty episodes. And that's your lot for this episode. I'm Peter White, and the producer is Matt Hill. Thanks to Stephen, Paul and Caitlin. See you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 